15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at Acts 15, 1 through 35, but I'm only going to read the first six verses uh, just to get us started. Uh, So please stand if you are able for the reading of God's Word. This is Acts 15, 1 through 6. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles. I'm losing my screws. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ in his grace this morning and by the power of your Holy Spirit, Conform us by that grace more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. When the gospel gets twisted, the church is in trouble. A twisted gospel troubles the church. And by the church, you can personalize that and say that a twisted gospel is bad news for you. It's very likely that over the course of your Christian life, you will be uh, drawn to these dangerously wrong ways of thinking about the gospel. Uh, It's so important to remember the gospel, to cherish the gospel, and to know it and to be able to distinguish it from false alternatives. Far from being good news, these false gospels, which we're often tempted by, are, they're destructive and dangerous. And in Acts 15, We see this at work. We see a twisted gospel troubling the church. And that's the first reason I want to look at Acts 15 with you this morning. Uh, The second reason for turning to Acts 15 is that here we find wisdom or principles according to which the church, uh, particularly the leadership of the church, ought to seek the truth of Scripture together when the gospel gets twisted. If a twisted gospel troubles the church, it's important to know Uh, and understand how it is that uh, Christ has given us means, ways, uh, structures through which to understand the truth of Scripture and to set things straight. Seeking the truth of Scripture sets things straight, and the way that the church seeks Scripture together is really laid out in Acts 15. We have these important principles here uh, for how we seek the truth together as a church. I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. What I'm talking about is church polity, or ecclesiology. And I know that's a hard sell on a Sunday morning when maybe the caffeine hasn't quite kicked in uh, to be talking about something like church polity. I'm sure it's everyone's favorite topic. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, Piper 
I guess uh, maybe about a year ago, she goes into my office and I see her chewing on one of my books on church polity. I thought, she gets it. It warmed my heart. Ecclesiology, it's a tasty treat. Um, Seriously, though, uh, we can laugh and we can groan, but this is an important topic. Uh, It's an important topic because if you want to keep on track following Jesus according to his word and understand how Jesus has, has seen fit to protect his church, uh, through church polity, Acts 15 is an important place to look at this church polity. And you, don't, you probably shouldn't just hear this one time in a membership class and then never hear about it again. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Maybe you're new to church. Uh, maybe you're new to being a Presbyterian. Or maybe you ask yourself, you know, if the gospel gets twisted and if that's such a big danger, how am I protected from that? How does the church seek to set things straight? So that's where we're going this morning So I want to look at two points this morning, really a problem and a solution. A twisted gospel troubles the church. Seeking the truth of Scripture sets the church straight. So let's look at this first point. A twisted gospel troubles the church. We've said that when the gospel gets twisted, the church is in trouble, so let's ask a couple of questions about that idea. First, how was the gospel twisted then? Look with me again at Acts 15. Look at Acts 15 verse 1. We read, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the early church in this moment. This was a mind-boggling moment in the beginning of the New Testament church. In the early days, the church was mainly Jewish. Uh, The long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, who had been promised in the Old Testament scriptures, had come. And many Jews were coming to Jesus, finding in Jesus the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. But now something unexpected was happening. What was that? They were shocked. They shouldn't have been shocked, but they were shocked. They were seeing Gentiles, people outside of the Old Covenant community, people who were not of Jewish origin, becoming Christians. They were coming to faith. Paul and Barnabas had just finished their first missionary journey, and you heard as we read that they were giving the news and the report that many people from the nations, in other words, not from the Jewish people, not from Israel, were coming to faith in Christ. This is mind-boggling, and it's really shaking things up. So put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of an early Christian of Jewish origin, and you say, who invited all of these people who don't look like me? They don't talk like us. They don't have the same religious heritage as us. They haven't been looking forward to the Messiah like us. You see how this would be a big deal. It was surprising. And this mind-boggling moment led to a grace-robbing message. In this confusing context, this false gospel takes shape, and it goes something like this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the teaching was essentially that you had to convert to Judaism. You had to be a proselyte. You had to receive the ritual sign of inclusion in that covenant to receive the good news of the promised Jewish Messiah. As if those outside of the pale of Judaism had no claim to this good news that had just dawned and that people were being saved by. Again, this is a seismic moment. Gentiles are following Jesus unexpectedly, and it leads to this serious gospel error. Uh, In the book of Galatians, which is really part of the backstory to Acts 15, uh, Paul is emphatic about how wrong this is. To say that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, 
is to preach a damnable false gospel. Those are the strong terms that Paul uses. Anathema. Let it be accursed. Paul makes no bones about it. Let such teachers be accursed. Strong words for a dangerous doctrine. In fact, that phrase, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, that makes no bones about it. I had no idea where that came from. I recently learned it comes from 15th century England. You find a problem with something, it's like finding a bone in your bone broth. You don't want a bone, you want a nice clear broth. And when you say no bones about it, when something's wrong, it's like finding a bone in the broth. We might say zero stars, do not recommend on a Yelp review. Same idea. Well, Paul was certainly upset to find that the gospel broth being served to the people that he was trying to reach with the good news of free grace in Christ, it had bones in it. There was a hair in the soup. There was a fly in the cheeseburger. And this sounds gross and we chuckle, but it is disgusting. It's absolutely sickening when the gospel has something in it that shouldn't be there. When it has something in it that shouldn't be there. Works of the law have no place in the gospel. In the gospel of free grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And again, he reiterates, not by works of the law. Because, third time, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That is the clear, delicious gospel broth that Paul is preaching and that people are twisting. That's the gospel with no additions. What must I do to be saved? Work really hard and see if you make it? Fulfill these requirements of the law? No. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. That's the gospel. No works added. So gospel truth, this free grace, must be defended for the good of the church. Paul does that in Galatians. He actually goes toe-to-toe with Peter over ways that Peter is failing. It's the reason he and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem in our story this morning in Acts 15. They're appointed for this task by the church in Antioch. Go put an end to this twisting of truth. Go speak with more people, more leaders in the church, and help sort this out. Let's think about this for a moment in in our historical moment. Uh, That's how the gospel got twisted then. Are there ways the gospel gets twisted today, we might ask? Well, there are many ways the gospel gets twisted today. We couldn't possibly go through all of them. But just to look at three, some maintain that the gospel doesn't entail a new way of life. It's a little bit different way of twisting the gospel. Live however you like. Easy. Just believe, which is the gospel. But this twisting says you're broken but forgiven and that's enough. If you want to get serious someday down the road about following Christ, you can do that then. But you're free in Christ, and that's enough. Don't weigh yourself down by trying to keep God's commandments. But the gospel entails a new way of life. The great commission that Jesus gave the apostles defined their mission. It defines our life. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Romans 6.4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So some maintain that the gospel doesn't entail a new way of life, but the gospel does indeed entail a new way of life. Another way the gospel gets twisted today 
Some minimize the freedom from sin which the gospel provides. This view doesn't deny that we're called to follow God's commandments, that we're called to walk in a new way of life, but it minimizes the good news of the gospel by denying the freedom from sin that the gospel provides. Does the good news of Jesus really leave us in bondage to some of our sinful desires with our only hope of freedom being his return and being made perfect in glory? Or does it break the power of all reigning sin? And does it give the freedom from all sin in our life as we pursue Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit seek to live in a way that pleases our Savior? Is there hope for our progress in holiness today in some of life or in every aspect of life with whatever it is that you deal with particularly and personally? Well, Romans 6.17 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The gospel breaks all kinds of chains and the chains of all kinds of sin. There's no perfection on this side of glory, so if that's what you're hoping for, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But the point here being is that we are not in bondage to our sin any longer because of the gospel. The Spirit enables obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching set forth in Scripture. So some minimize the freedom from sin which the gospel provides, but the gospel gives freedom from sin to become obedient from the heart. One final way, and this really takes us back around to the recurring problem of adding works to the gospel, some moralize our standing before God by adding works to the gospel. By adding works, this is the problem Acts 15 deals with. The danger of trying to contribute uh, your own works for acceptance before God, rather than relying on the free grace alone that Christ provides. I think you can really think of times when this is true of you. I'm sure very few of you this morning would say, I believe I am accepted by God because of the works that I do. But I'm sure you know what it's like to live that way. When you get up on a, you know, some morning and you have your time of devotions with the Lord and you go through the day doing a pretty good job of keeping your cool with your children and interacting professionally at work and not slandering your boss behind his back and not, uh, you know, holding your tongue or your thumbs, like I say, on social media and not engaging and you get to the end of the day, you think, I did pretty good. And what happens the next day when you get up on the wrong side of the bed and you blow it and you yell at your kids and you're cranky at work and you get into debates with strangers online and you end the day and you think, man, God must really be upset at me. Don't we tend to live that way? We tend to think that way. That is not the gospel. That is not the good news. Now, there will be consequences and discipline for the things that we do right or wrong, but God is not mad at his children. He loves his children in Christ because of what he has done. It's no gospel at all to think that when you blow it, you've some way put your salvation in peril. So some moralize our standing before God by adding works to the gospel rather than believing that it is by faith in Jesus that we are secure and forgiven in our standing before God. So as you see, all of these various twisted versions of the gospel, they're serious trouble for the church, and we could go on and on. So what needs to happen? What do you do when this is the prevailing thought in a church body, in a region of the church, in a denomination? What do you do when uh, you need to combat these false ideas of the gospel? Well, seeking the truth of Scripture sets the church straight. As we walk through this section, I want you to think about this. This is your story. You usually don't think about it. You read the Bible for other reasons, perhaps. This is your family history. 
This is the early church debating why in the world did these weird people who are not of Jewish descent, and that would include most of us, why are they included in this good news? So listen for that as we walk through this. Paul and Barnabas, they're these embattled missionaries in Antioch. They couldn't settle this dispute about the gospel. This dispute about the most fundamental truths of the gospel. It wasn't for lack of trying. It says they had no small dissension and debate, but something had to be done. The issue needed more hands on it, more hearts involved, more eyes searching the scriptures together. This broader group to bring clarity to this matter. So Paul and Barnabas are appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. They make their way to Jerusalem, and as they go, they're sharing the stories of God's grace and how God's grace is transforming Gentiles, people in our family tree, right? How people are coming to faith. It's encouraging, isn't it, to learn these stories? We have missionaries come and visit us and share what God is doing on the mission field. Doesn't it surprise us? Sometimes in the most surprising ways and surprising places, God is at work. And it's encouraging. So you can imagine how this was encouraging as Paul and Barnabas go and they share about how the gospel is reaching people. So they arrive in Jerusalem and their problems follow them all the way to Jerusalem. We read, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, and notice that, believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So these are the ones twisting this gospel in this way. They're believers who are twisting the gospel. They rise up and say it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So let's ask the question first, how did the church seek to the truth of Scripture in this first encounter with the gospel? First, the leaders of the church met together to reason together about what was right. They meet together, they reason together about what was right. Luke tells us it was a long debate among the apostles and elders in the presence of the church, but it is the apostles and the elders debating this. They're trying to wrestle through this matter with Scripture, and I want to show you how they do that. Look first at verses 7 through 11. This is what Peter says. Peter appeals to what God had done in the past. Peter says, remember what God has done in the past. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter is not the apostle to the Gentiles, but he took the gospel to the Gentiles first. He was there when the Spirit was first given to the Gentiles. And he says, remember what God did. Remember what he did. He saw God do this work among the Gentiles. It took Peter a while to process that. There were times when he himself got the gospel twisted. And he made it about who, who, whose descendant you were versus in whom your faith was placed. Paul took him to task for that, but he gets it. He acknowledges here that Paul was right. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. No works, just sheer, undeserved, surprising, far-reaching mercy for sinners. That includes people in far-off places like Warrington, Virginia. We will all be saved just as they were. So Peter appeals to what God has done in the past. And then you have Paul and Barnabas appeal to what God is doing in the present. Look with me at verse 12. 
They're giving the report from the field. God is saving Gentiles right and left. Verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It's undeniable that God is working beyond the Jewish people among the nations, among the Gentiles, bringing them to faith in Jesus. And then James, the brother of Jesus. He was a prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. He clinches the debate. He appeals not to what God had done in the past and not to what God is doing in the present. He appeals to what, the God, what God had said, what God's Word had promised, what He had spoken through the prophets. He appeals to Scripture. Peter said, hey, look, I saw Gentiles coming to faith when they received the Spirit. Paul and Barnabas say, look, Gentiles are coming to faith. Anywhere we go, they're receiving the Spirit and they're coming to faith. That's experiential, but here, James gets biblical. And he says, look at Scripture with me. We read it this morning from Amos 9. If you look with me at verse 13, we'll see how he cites Amos 9. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, that's Peter, how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And in this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James says all the prophets agree, but he especially quotes Amos. And as he quotes Amos, it's not an exact quote. He's interpreting what this prophecy meant. Gentiles joining God's people was always part of the plan. Rebuilding David's tent? If you're a Jewish new Christian, you think, well, yeah, that's my point. He says, no. David's tent, the sides are going to be blown out. Gentiles are going to be brought in. This gospel is for everyone. You were always part of that plan. So James concludes, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. In other words, stop troubling the Gentiles who turn to God. Uh, Don't let anyone tell you that you can add one sliver of merit to your standing before God. That's the message. James says that we need to stop troubling these people. They're coming to God by faith. And that's good news for us too. And he offers some wise counsel, which sounds a little odd to us. What does it mean to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality? We get, but it seems out of place with what comes next and from what has been strangled and from blood. Well, these requirements, they don't pertain to salvation. No, it's decidedly not the conclusion of Acts 15 that these things are about salvation. I, I agree with someone who put it this way. This is one of the views, and I think it's right. The Gentile Christians were being asked to refrain from activities that even resembled pagan worship thereby avoiding even the appearance of evil. In other words, this isn't in order to be saved. This is now that you are saved, set yourself apart so there's no confusion with who you once were. Right? And I think there's application for us as well. Well, what happens when the assembly concludes? First, the leaders of the church meet together to reason about what is right, and then the leaders of the church communicate their conclusion to the churches. So you have the apostles and elders and their 
deliberating on this and they're deciding this matter, and then they send what they have deliberated on and what they have decided back to the churches. I'll just read a couple of things from the contents of that letter. Uh, if you want to look, it's in Acts 15.23. <clears throat> the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Notice verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, and then those requirements of setting yourself apart from the world. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. How was it received? With joy. The churches were glad that someone had put a stop to this. Someone had sorted it out. And that was the church seeking truth together. Now, how does the church do this? What do we learn that applies to us today? It's kind of amazing to see this piece of our ancient story unfold, how the Gentiles are brought in. But then also amazing is to see how from the earliest days of the church, there is something in place to deal with these kinds of things. I just want to look at a few principles that we gain from this. Uh, if you look back with me in verse 2 of Acts 15, we see... Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. That single verse gives us really a few principles. We'll look at other parts of Acts 15, but that verse alone gives us a few principles. The first principle is the authority of the elders. This is how we put this into practice, at least at our corner of the church that we call Presbyterianism. The word elder here is where we get the word presbyter. Maybe you've heard that if you've been around the church long. Presbyteros just means elder, and we call ourselves a Presbyterian church. Elders, also called pastors or overseers, all referring to the same church office that governs the church. And here in Acts 15, you still have the apostles present because we're in this time bridging the two eras of the church, right? The apostles are receding, and we are seeing the church being established but it's the apostles and the elders that come together. Once the apostles are gone, the elders take up that baton. Uh, to look a little bit more about what elders do uh, and how they rule, 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So some elders labor especially by their training and in their focus in preaching and teaching. But all elders rule. And those who rule well are to be considered worthy of honor. It's important to remember that even in this context, the elders are chosen by the church to govern the church. In Acts 14.22, just one chapter earlier, these elders are being established in Antioch. And then when problems happen in Antioch, what happens? The elders appoint Paul and Barnabas to go and take this thing and settle the matter. So you can look at that in Acts 14.22. It says that, they were appointed, at least in the ESV, by Paul and Barnabas, but that verb is a word in Greek used to refer to this election process, this process of setting someone out and determining who the options might be, and then there's an election. 
So the people choose those who govern over them, and then the elders rule. The same word is used in uh, the second century, uh, not in Scripture, but in a letter to the church. It says, appoint for yourselves, therefore, bishops, that's overseers, appoint for yourselves, therefore, bishops or elders and deacons worthy of the Lord. So you have this first point that I want to point out. The elders are those who rule, but they don't rule alone, and that's the second point. Uh, Jesus gives the authority to elders as guides chosen by the people to defend and direct the doctrine and life of the church. But the second principle is this, and it's really important. It's multiple elders leading with equal authority. You see that as well in Acts 15. It's not just one person. Hey, go ask James what to do. We don't do that. This is the plurality of elders and the parity of elders. They're equal in authority and in office. We call this a session in our local setting. We notice the, way, notice the way the apostles interact in Acts 15, and it gives us this principle. Uh, they're sent uh, by the church to deliberate, and you might think, well, they're just going to ask the apostles what to do. No, the apostles and the elders argue and debate and determine according to Scripture what to do. Apostles didn't ride around just zapped with inspiration anytime they were asked a question. They're working with Scripture and working with the wisdom the Lord has given them to govern the church and to protect the church from error. So we see that in Acts 15. We see that there are these multiple elders called to lead a church. And that's really important, I think, if you just look at the way church life happens and look at the news over the course of however long, you see that this celebrity culture of one personality or one individual is just, it's a very thin branch to stand on when it comes to trust in a local church. Your trust shouldn't be in one man. Please never let that be so but with multiple elders leading with equal authority, with equal respect for Scripture and for one another, that's the model you see. And it protects the church. It protects the church from the sin of one individual. No church is perfect because we're sinners. But this is a much more biblical model to follow. So we see multiple elders leading with equal authority. Jesus protects his church from the failure of a single man by establishing a plurality of elders to govern the church. And then finally, regional responsibility. Please stay with me here because this is where Acts 15 is really helpful. Antioch didn't just settle Antioch's business. They said, we need more wisdom. And that's sort of the genius of Acts 15 and something that we seek to apply as Presbyterians. Heritage doesn't settle heritage's business. Even Potomac Presbytery, of which we're connected, doesn't settle our business. We are connected and we want to be connected for accountability's sake and for wisdom's sake to a larger body. Paul and Barnabas, they fight tooth and nail. They do everything they can. They can't settle it in Antioch. So they reach out to the broader church. And there's wisdom there which we apply. Uh, your elders have taken vows to do this. The sixth vow that all of your elders have taken reads like this. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account. And that means beyond the walls of the local church. We're talking about the whole church. So just last week, a couple of your elders and I were at uh, the 150th meeting of Potomac Presbytery, the regional body of churches here that are connected in this place, in this country. Uh, what did we do? We prayed. We prayed a good long while for all of the needs that were brought for the body. And then 
We prayed for business at our regional level and our national level. And then we did the business of the church. We brought in new pastors and we determined things that needed to happen in the future. Uh, on Monday, or maybe actually this afternoon, some of your elders, uh, Chris, Matthew, uh, Ed included, and myself, will be going to General Assembly. And there we'll be doing the work of the church. It's sort of like going up to Jerusalem, but Memphis, maybe the Jerusalem of barbecue. And we will be there, and you should pray for the church as we seek to do the work of the church. There are things to celebrate, being our 50th anniversary as a denomination. There are things to mourn when it comes to other things. There are things to deal with that are important matters of doctrine that need to be decided. And we want to come together in agreement about these matters, so pray. But that's that last principle, so I'll just review them quickly. The authority of elders, multiple elders with equal authority, and then this regional responsibility. All of that from Acts 15. So we see how Jesus preserves the truth of the gospel in this way. How he preserves the truth of the gospel by this right structuring of the church. There are going to be problems until Jesus returns. Okay, never think, wow, we have it made. We have the best church on earth. Session, Presbytery, General Assembly. Stephen Charnock, a Puritan writer, said, Observe, the best churches are like the moon, not without their spots. <laughs> the purest times have their imperfections. A pure state is not allowed to this, but reserved for another world. So we will fumble the ball as we seek to do church right. But we have principles that guide us. And we can be thankful to see how in the early days of the church, those principles kept the gospel and held it back from the precipice of heresy, of burdening people with a yoke that's too heavy to bear, right? Gospel truth was preserved. So pray for your elders as they work here, as they work regionally, as they work in the larger picture of the GA next week. But pray for your own heart and for the hearts of those around you to never be led astray thinking, I really ought to mix in some works to this delicious gospel that's being served up. No works allowed. You were saved unto works, but not through works. And that's what was preserved in this early debate. Let's pray together to that end. Father, help us as sinners to always cling to the grace of our Savior. And help those of us who lead as elders in your church, sinners though we are, to lead with the grace of our Savior and to seek his wisdom and to base all of our decisions on his word alone. We pray that you would be with us and that you would guide us, that you would build your church, that you would clarify the gospel even when it gets twisted in our own hearts, and that you would help us, Lord, to seek you in all of this. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.